This morning we're looking at a new section of, uh, of Romans. So we continue kind of hopping through this book, uh, Romans 9 through 11. And uh, one of, as, we, as I look at this and as I reflected on this passage in Romans 9, one of the things that came to my heart is that few things can tear us up like a community gone wrong. You know, so often our communities are the place where we have, we have hope, where we have like our meaning, we have our, our system of support. And when the community goes wrong, it's something that can totally tear up our hearts, whether it's in our families or whether it's in our nation, whether it's with, with a, a group of people that we've been involved or our church or whatever the case may be. And what I want to say is that this passage, which is familiar, I'm sure, to many of you, I know a lot of you have studied this passage, in particular Romans 9, um, that, that it, 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 is, it comes out of Paul's wrestling with the grief of his heart over the community with which he was involved. It is, he grew up a Jew as part of the, the community of Israel in the nation of Israel. And he has a heart for the people, but he's seen that things didn't quite go right as indeed went really wrong. And he's struggling with, what do I do with that? It's the same sort of thing that when we see our own nation, um, the United States, that's not everybody's nation, or Mexico or wherever you're from today, um, that you see it like, this is not, things aren't going right. And you struggle with it. And we'd like to see it, we'd see the gospel go forward. We'd like to see it in a better place. This is the sort of thing that Paul was struggling with. And you see that he has this powerful statement at the end of Romans 8. For I am persu- convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And a lot of us probably read that and we're, we're done or we memorize that. And that's a great verse, a couple of verses to memorize. It's a great thing to meditate on. It, it closes that concluding section of Romans chapter 8. It's just one of the most powerful statements of God's love for us and the confidence we have for the future. But it's, it's interesting. Remember, this is in a letter. The chapters, the verses aren't there. It's just he's writing, you know. He didn't put these chapters in there. Added later for convenience. But right after he thinks of the love of Christ and how we're, we're, we can't be separated from it, he actually says, I would wish that myself would be cut off from Christ. Not in the abstract, but so that my countrymen could be brought back in. That's an amazing statement. That's one you can think about for a long time. But he says, he goes on. It's it's the follow-up to this amazing verse, this one that you may have memorized or thought on, reflect on, shared on Facebook in a meme or whatever. And he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart as he deals with the fact that his own people, the people he grew up with, his ancestors had not listened to what God was doing and had rejected them. And he says, For I would wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. He's just said, I can't happen. That I'm persuaded nothing can separate us. But he's almost like, if I could, I would give myself for my people. He has a deep love for his people, for the community with which he is involved. And his heart is in anguish for that. 
That's the sort of thing that we're dealing with in this passage. The wrestling that you and I have and that Paul had with the communities that have gone wrong, that aren't walking in the way of the Lord, that are, are, are heading in a wrong direction, and that are moving towards even destruction. And it's the same heart of Jesus who, when he looked on the multitude, said, I have compassion upon them, for they are like sheep without a shepherd. It's the same heart of Jesus who, when he looked over, the, over to Jerusalem, said, I sat and wept because he said, I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks together, but you were not willing. That's the heart of Paul. That's the heart of Jesus. And as he thought about this, he just he couldn't help but see the glory and the wonder of the nation of Israel. He says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from their human ancestry, the Messiah, who know, he says, the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. He's God, the eternal Son of God, but also the descendant of the Jewish people. Of Israel. And so it was what was grieving his heart. And they had been prepared for years, thousand plus years, to receive this Messiah. And when he came, they stumbled over it and didn't receive him. How would he process that? He's almost like it seems like even the word of God itself failed because this community is not what I want it to be. And indeed, we can have that same experience when our family falls apart, when our business falls apart, when our community falls apart, when our church falls apart, when our nation falls apart, and even looking at the world as a whole. The world is meant to be a place that gives glory to God, united in peace with one another, filled with joy and peace, giving praise to the Lord, but it's all fighting and war and struggling for things, anxiety and fighting and struggling. And forgetting God and pursuing just the little things, the gold that we can get in this world, forgetting the goodness of the Lord. And so that can grieve our heart as well. So what is God going to do with all that? What is he going to do with Israel? What is he going to do with the world? How are we to process these things? That's what I want to explore in the next three sermons that we're giving. But today I want to focus on just the fact that um, God is a purpose in a community gone wrong. It may not always be the purpose we like, but we recognize that God has a purpose that we might not have. And I think one of the key things for us to do when things go wrong is not just to look at the things that go wrong. We need to look above the things that go wrong to the God who is involved and over the things that go wrong. We need to see not just the people and the problems, but the God who is above the people and problems. I mean, I know from experience, just like any of you, that when there's problems and there's difficulties and there's people that you're struggling with, it just goes round and round your head and you just can't stop thinking about the people or the problems. But the Bible redirects us over and over again to say, let's think about the God who is above the, those people and those problems. And that's, what, and that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. And he's doing it not just in seeing, seeing God in the abstract, but God in terms of how he's acted throughout the history of Israel itself. And so that's what we want to look at a little bit more. Let's consider a little bit more deeply the purpose of God in a community gone wrong. So as we said, it's almost like when we see here is the word of God coming, the people who are meant to accept it, reject it. You almost might think the word of God has failed. The word of God has not done what it was supposed to do. 
But what he says is God has many purposes that are consistent with his word, that were consistent with his character, that have been working through for a long time. One of those is the principle of election and the purpose of election that has been working for a long time. That God shows that he has a right to do what he wants to with his creatures by selecting one and rejecting others. So, for example, even in the history of Israel, it was not all the natural children who made up Israel. The, the father, Abraham, had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He had others later. But the promise came through Isaac. God made a selection there. And he amplifies that and says that this was about God's purpose, not because Isaac was like the best or the greatest guy of all time. And God said, I'll pick him. And he shows that from the history of Jacob and Esau, the children of Isaac. Because he said God decided before they were, when they were in the womb and, or had done anything good or evil, um, they were twins, seemingly equal, that he says, in Jacob will the, your seed be called. It will not be through Israel before they had done anything or e- good or evil. And what he says is that when he looks at the history he goes into from Genesis to the last book in the Bible, Malachi, and he says, and look how it worked out. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Not that he was saying that that's what he said when they were in the womb, but he says, looking at it in perspective, he could see that that's God's purpose working out. That he said when looking at the history, that he kept pursuing Jacob, but then he turned against Esau or Edom, the nation of Edom. And you can read through that through the entire history of the Bible. So he goes from Genesis Genesis all the way to Malachi. Well, we see there God's purpose of election. And what he says is that's still operating today. Is that, that God is going to work in some and not in others. He's going, he has purposes with some. And sometimes he takes some of the same community and he'll work with them and reject the others to show that he has a right to do what he wants to do. And that in a way we might not say that it's not primarily about our community, but it's primarily about the sovereign God who works over and above our communities even though our communities are important. We can also see that the unmerited mercy of God has been working for a long time. We can see that all born in sin, none of them deserve mercy, but especially when they reject the Lord and stubbornly refuse what He's actually telling them to do. And so God God says that He doesn't have to show mercy on anyone. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mercy. But he says to Moses, as he revealed his glory, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. When Moses requested to see God's glory, he said, this is a choice I can make. I can reveal it to whom I want, and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. All of them, including Moses, were in sin, but God gave him a gift and illustrated that he was the God who shows mercy on those whom he will. And so we should say that the conclusion he makes is that, verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So when we see a human world going forward, we see people experiencing, experiencing the goodness of the Lord and coming to Him. It's not, it's not that these humans were necessarily better than other ones, but that God had a purpose and He showed mercy to whom He wanted to show mercy. But we can also see the hardening of God has come on the disobedient for a long time. God has, has done this throughout history. He can look on the same sinful people 
Give some over to hardening, have mercy on others. And he gives an example in that of Pharaoh. Pharaoh um, was inclined in his heart to say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And uh, this, is, this, is, this has been impressed upon me powerfully by my trips to Egypt. You will see the giant statues of the pharaohs. And, and you can see that someone would come and there are these, these 70-foot statues of Ramses, for example. And I can imagine Moses going, says, God tells you to let your slaves go. Says, Who is God that I would listen to him? And so he was not inclined at all. He was kind of see, saw, inclined to see himself as God on earth. But God hardened him in his own hardening. And he did it in order to bring Israel out of, out of Egypt and to show his glory, he says, to the ends of the earth. I raise you up for this very purpose, he says in verse 17, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And what he's going to say is, if now Israel, rejecting the Lord and hardening themselves, you know, he gives them over to their own hardening, and so hardens them, so that his name be proclaimed on the earth, all throughout the world, how can they complain when they were the beneficiary of it that they didn't deserve in the past? That is what God is doing. So this is how, how God works throughout history. And sometimes he does this, and other times he shows mercy. Because God has a purpose in wrath that has been working for a long time. He uses here the example of the potter and clay. God is the maker. He can make with it what he wants. If he can look at the same sinful people and use to show his glory by giving, giving them the wrath that they deserve, then he can also show his mercy by showing mercy to some that didn't deserve it. And so we see that God has been doing that for a long time. And so it's still operative in the communities today. Now, this is not exact in every way. We're not just inanimate objects. As um, Adolf Schlatter put it, as little as the clay guides the hand of the potter at his work, so little does a man compel God to give. He is the potter, and we are the clay, as Jeremiah says. But God also has a purpose in his wrath to highlight his patience and his mercy and glory. In verse 22, he says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? So he shows by by. Over and over again, as he says in Romans 10, stretching out his hands all day long to a disobedient people to welcome that shows how patient and how kind he is. But then he also shows that he's merciful to them. When in contrast with his wrath, we see his mercy. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? And so you see that he shows mercy. So God has a purpose And a big part of that purpose is building a new community. And he's been at it for a long time, even out of Israel, even hardening others, showing mercy to some, doing what he wants to do. And so we see that when when we're dealing with a community gone wrong, we see that we should not just see the purpose that we want, but the purpose that God has. And sometimes that intersects with what we want. At other times, it does not intersect. And that's not easy to process. Paul says... I have great anguish in my heart. I have great sorrow for what is happening. And I would wish myself would be cut off. 
But it's not that it eliminates the pain, but we recognize there is still another purpose. And that is the purpose of God. And that can help soften the blow sometimes when the community goes wrong. And especially when we can see that God is building a new community. Now, I want to talk about that building a community just briefly here. But let me just pause here and talk about all the things I've just talked about. Um, and just kind of make some applications for that to how we should think about what is stated here. So one of the things is, like, a lot of people have read this passage, and then they've ran with it, and it's like all they talk about, and then it's all they think about. But we should handle this teaching with care. And that when we're talking about the hardening of God, wrath on some, mercy on others, we need to use great wisdom here. That's why our own confession of faith as the Presbyterian Church, our historic confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, said the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. And often it has not been, and the result has often been confusion and wrong separation and mistakes and overstatements and stuff that has brought some scandal. So if you're going to talk about this, talk about it with special prudence and care. Make that, uh, stamp that on your forehead if this, is a, if this is an important issue to you. And every time you look in the mirror, you'll see it. But then secondly, the, the main point of this is that we should be amazed at God's mercy. If we are called and embrace Christ, then we should say, I owe this all to God. That's the big purpose of this point. It was God's mercy. It was not my desire or effort. As it says in that great hymn, Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." That is the sum of what we should take away from this, that we might sing that from our hearts forever. But then we should humble ourselves before God's purpose and community. We need to rem- it's helpful for us to remember that we have one desire to see certain things come to pass with our communities. But we also have to remember that we're not the sovereign Lord. The sovereign Lord is the Lord. And he has a right to do with it as he wants to. And he, and he has purposes that sometimes intersect and sometimes go against what we want. And so I think when we enter in and we see our hearts grieved like Apostle Paul's was, let's remember that God is working there too with a whole bunch of purposes to display his glory. And we should remember that God is still building his community. Just because one community doesn't work out the way we would like does not mean there's no community. There is the church, the true Israel of God. And so let's consider that with a little bit more depth here in the end of the passage the purpose of God in creating a new community. So think of this amazing thing. Now, many of his own countrymen, the Apostle Paul says, rejected what the Lord said. He's going to say, because they pursued it by works and not by faith. But on the other hand, you think about this. There was was the nation of Israel, people like the Apostle Paul himself, who grew up, living apart and separate from Gentiles and, and saying they need to become Jewish in order for us to associate with them, in essence. Or we hold them at arm's length. They need to say that the main community was the one where the temple get, was and the, where the gatherings were 
and where the patriarchs were from which they were descended. And they, and, and they viewed this as their pride. And, and to some degree, rightly, it's a glorious thing that God gave them. But what they said is that, again and again, people like Peter, people like Paul, people like Apollos, who were part of this community, said, I'm going to push this community somewhat to the side. They didn't reject it completely. They still love their country. And I'm make this community over here a community of Jews and Gentiles devoted to Christ, my number one community on earth. That is an astonishing work of God's grace. That is a miracle beyond belief. And I think every time when God breaks down the barriers of our cultures to say allegiance to Christ matters the most and we can give up things and we can set things aside, it is a miracle of God's grace. And I think the church in America is called to do that. Our country is becoming more diverse. And it demands that we, we are going to make some sacrifices to come together with people of different backgrounds. And, you know, I always thought, you know, having... I said, well, why don't people have, you know, a multicultural church? You know, why don't we have more blacks and whites gathering together? Why don't we have more Hispanics and, and, and whites? I mean, if they, especially if they both speak English, right? Why is it that we're all in these different churches? We all speak the same language. Our allegiance is to Christ. Well, the Lord has kind of put in my path uh, an entrance into the Hispanic community um, just through a variety of things I won't go into. But just trying to bring these two communities together and friends who are Hispanic and friends who are, who are white together, it's like, that's been a lot harder than I thought. And it's not because there's necessarily hostility, but it's like I have a party and they say, we're going to all get together. All the white people show up at 5 and leave at 8. And the Hispanics arrive at 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. So all my other friends are already gone. So, I mean, that's a minor point. Think about the Jews and Gentiles coming together where some of these things even had previously the sanction of God himself. God doesn't say you have to go to bed at 8 o'clock, believe it or not. But he did say, you know, you had to be circumcised. And now he's saying you don't have to be to be part of the people of God, to be part of the main community of God. That is, that, these were things that were huge. It's a work of God's grace. But God had prophesied that he would do this. He had said that though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. And then, and then he goes on to say that those who were not his people would become his people. Look at verse 25. I will call them my people... Who are not my people? I will call them my loved one who is not my loved one. In the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. And so the result was what they were seeing in that day and what we see to this day. What is in verse 24? That, that the Lord has shown us mercy to display his glory, even us whom he called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And that is an astonishing way God has provided a community a community on who God said he was, who he promised, he promised he would be, and 
the promises concerning the Messiah, and they united around that, and God provided community. So even though Paul faced tremendous persecution from his own people, he had church after church after church where he could go and he could be welcomed in by Jew and Gentile alike, and he had community. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul said, hey, the, the Israel, my Israel according to the flesh, that I hate them and never talking to them again. No, he had a heart for them. You know, that's one thing. When we, when we give our allegiance to the community centered around Christ, that doesn't mean we, we hate our other communities or just write them off completely. Our heart is for them, and we need to keep working uh, to see them come where they should be. That's what Paul's going to say in Romans 10 and 11. We'll talk about it in the next couple of weeks. We keep an, a certain affection, but our desire is that they be made new. But we recognize that when that doesn't happen, for any one of us, that God still has a purpose in community. And he won't leave us without community. He keeps doing his work. He keeps building his church. He keeps bringing people together. He keeps providing for us. It's just what Jesus said when he told his disciples, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. It's like, yeah, don't, don't get carried away here, he's saying. And in the age to come, though, eternal life. Many who are first will be last, the last will be first. In other words, he's saying, like, if, if one relationship fails, and sometimes it's not even like, it's not even conflict, it's just life changes. People move. People go different places. Kids move out. Uh, you know, people end their jobs because they retire and it's, things change. God's saying, look, I'm still going to care for you. Be open to how I'm going to provide for your community. Look at the people around you. These are the people you can love. Look at the people in your neighborhood. There's believers there, I'm sure, in this place. Look at the people that you meet. Maybe it's even just one day where you end up in an Uber ride with, with someone. You start talking about Christ and you have a communion there. And God said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you community. So my friends, let's take this. Let's long for our communities to be restored. But at the same time, let's also remember not to let our desire be the first desire. Let our first desire be to follow the Lord's desire. And we don't need to doubt that he'll bring us forward. He'll provide for us the community that we all need. This also is his purpose in the world. Amen.